Many times when choosing a payroll service, you have to choose between a new startup with a great app or an established company whose tech may feel behind the times. With OnPay, you get the best of both worlds, a great app from an established company that's been providing payroll services for over 30 years in all 50 states. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, OnPay, later in the episode. Yeah, it makes no sense. Why make the non-CPA owners in a CPA firm get 150 hours? Like, is it just to put them on par with the education requirement for CPAs so that... But there's no control over this. Like, again, I'm doing basket weaving. I can do any 150 I want. Right. Yeah, you just have to have 150 hours of education. Five years of college, basically. Here's my what I suspect. The reason they did this is because they don't want people deciding not to get the CPA because of the 150-hour requirement and just become a non-CPA partner in the firm. So it's to force people to get the CPA, even though there's this onerous requirement. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. It is December 23rd. We're recording a day before Christmas Eve. Yeah, we don't want to record on Christmas morning. I don't think it's a good idea. No, or the day after would be a bad idea as well. So uh, it's good to talk to you again so soon, David. We have a lot to cover. Short week, but there's still stuff to cover. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, We have a bunch of listener mail, and I promised last episode we would get to it. We can start with that. What else do we have to talk about? Um, We can talk about Elon Musk. He has taxes to pay. Some 10 billion or more in taxes? 11 billion. He's going to pay the most taxes in the history of the country, I think. That's amazing. But the best part of it was right after... uh, Elizabeth Warren called him out because he was on the cover of Time Magazine and she called him out as somebody who doesn't pay taxes. First, he replied to her and he said, don't call the manager on me, Karen. And he started calling her Senator Karen, which I thought was funny. <laughs> you know, because she always writes letters, right? Like she's always writing a letter. And then he went on, I don't know, a day or two later, he's replied to her and he's like, I'm paying the most taxes than any Americans ever paid in the history of America. <laughs> this year. That's amazing. Good for him. Good for him. Well, since you brought up politics, we can also talk about the Trump fraud inquiry. I saw this article, I don't know, maybe it was last week in the New York Times. I want to get into that because as an accountant, I actually understand, I think, the issue here. And we'll talk about whether or not Trump is actually going to be in trouble. Zero and Sage made some acquisitions. Get to touch on that. Yes, tax in Canada. I'm so jealous. I have some stuff on Secret Service talking about the... COVID funds. Secret service? Oh, yes. The um, total amount of fraud, right? We're getting a better picture of just how much fraud there was with PPP and EIDL. I also uh, like to think about the future of the accounting profession when the year ends. It's always good to think about where we are at and where we are going. And so I have some stories about that. I'm not seeing a lot of those yet this week. I feel like maybe next week will be the big top trends of 2022. Like all those kind of posts, I'm just not seeing them just yet. Well, I've been saving up some, so. Oh, some people got in early. They, they've been posted. <laughs> These are just the stats that I've noticed throughout the year or things okay. that have happened. So we'll talk about, you know, the relevance of the CPA. This is a recurring theme on our show. And we'll talk about the data around that. Oh, the big news is Earmark CPE, my app that gets you CPE for listening to this podcast and more, is live on the Apple App Store. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. Just happened a couple days ago. We're doing a soft launch. I haven't made a big public announcement yet. I think I'm going to do that next week after the Christmas holiday. 
hopefully by then Android will be available as well. Google is taking longer than Apple to approve our app. Surprisingly, that's not usually the case. Usually Google's a little bit looser. But if you have friends and family that are, you know, getting new iPhones for Christmas and you're helping them set that up, feel free to subscribe them to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Feel free to download and install the Earmark app on their phone. Feel free because it just helps bumping up those ratings a little bit. Yeah, we, we appreciate it. It's almost as good as writing a review. So if you want to, our dear listener, if you would like to get continuing professional education credit, NASBA approved CPE for listening to this episode and all the other cloud accounting podcast episodes that you've listened to recently, go to the Apple App Store and download the Earmark CPE app. Now, I got to warn you, if you type in Earmark, E-A-R-M-A-R-K, into the App Store, right now it will think that you meant to search for Aramark and it will correct you. And you will have oh. to then say, no, I meant to search for Earmark. It's like searching uh, for David Leary on Google. Well, yeah, where you get work. Dennis Leary. Aramark is that giant company that I think they're a supplier to hospitality businesses. You know, they're, they're a lot more famous than Earmark. So the App Store has not yet learned that people want Earmark. So to clarify, so this episode, they can go over to the app, take a quiz, get CPE credit. Can they go back to the very first episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast? Like how many episodes back can they go to still listen to and take CPE credit? We've got a, a few on there right now, a handful. And I'm backfilling, I don't know, maybe a few dozen is the idea. But I don't, I don't think I'm going to go back further than that. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Because there comes a point where our show is kind of irrelevant for old episodes. Super <laughs> but every episode going forward is going to be available for one hour of specialized knowledge, CPE, also, my Earmark Accounting Podcast is going to be available each episode, most of the episodes, not all of them, because some of them are too short. Most will be available. And all the ones that qualify are up there right now. So if you haven't heard my interview with Ed Menlowitz, or let's say you did, and you want to go back and get the CP for it, now you can. You and I record a podcast, let's say on a Saturday. By the time we get out the door, it's Wednesday. Can somebody on Thursday morning open up your app and take the quiz? Like, Is there some gap in there? What's That's the, the plan. The plan is that the course will be available on Earmark as soon as the episode drops. It may take a few days, but it'll be that same week, hopefully. Okay. And, the, and the benefit sure is- we'll get, It'll get tighter as yeah. systems and processes come into play. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the beauty is that you can listen to the podcast in your favorite podcast player. So if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you don't have to change how you listen. You listen there, and then you open up the Earmark app, you find the episode, and you take the quiz, and you get your credit. You can simply certify that you listen to the episode in my app. There's no requirement by NASBA that I actually track your every minute of listening, which I think is actually so, kind of nice. So the questions, will they be in like chronological order with the episode? Uh, the question order is randomized. There are five questions for each hour episode, and... They relate to various stories throughout the episode. So you've got to listen to the whole episode. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't keep the app open while I'm listening to the episode. Well, I guess no. I could. I could kind of preview what those five questions are. You, you could, but the idea is that they're easy enough where if you listen to the episode, you should be able to get the question right. Okay, gotcha. The beauty of self-study CPE is you can take the quiz as many times as you need to. It's not like your answer yeah. for question number one is bacon. And then they, you, you say that out loud in the podcast and they go to the app and get their credit. No, no, it's not like that. No, it's, it's, it's actually about the content. So awesome. yeah, I, I'm, I'm super excited. I hope that our listeners get value out of this. It's completely free for now. And I intend for the app to be always freemium. So there will always be a way to earn 
CPE credit. Uh, there will be a subscription though, so you can support Earmark. We're figuring out exactly how that's going to work. It'll probably be for premium content, for a private community where you can interact and talk with me and other Earmark users, like premium subscribers. We'll probably have like a, a, a limit on the amount of CPE you can earn if you're not a subscriber, that sort of thing. But I always want people to be able to go in and get at least one hour per week for free because that incentivizes good behavior. We're not cramming at the end of the year to get our CPE anymore. That's what I want to do. So I take the quiz, I pass it, I get my CPE. Does does the app just produce a PDF for me? Do I get a PDF in email? Like how do I show proof of my education requirement? Right now you get an email to your address on file that is the certificate and you can print that to PDF and save that. I'm working with my developers so that we can actually send you an attachment that's a PDF as well. PDFs are really hard to make. It's not an easy thing. So we're going to build that in and you'll get a pretty certificate. But right now, the the email that you get when you pass a course, you you email it to yourself, that will satisfy the NASBA requirement. Save it to Evernote or wherever you do, wherever you archive things to. Yeah, save it to a folder on your computer or if you need to save it to a, or save it to a folder in your Outlook. You could take a picture of it and then you could put that up on Twitter that way it's saved on Twitter and you could show the world that you got CP credit for listening to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. You could. I would appreciate that. Tag at Earmark CPE if you like the app and, and point other people to it. I haven't made a big announcement yet. It's a soft launch. I'll be doing that uh, next week, so after the Christmas holiday. You just announced it on the Cloud Accounting Podcast. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, I guess, yeah, this is <laughs> the biggest. Launched. I mean, now it's launched. I mean, it's pretty much out there now. <laughs> <laughs> so again, only for Apple right now, hopefully for Android soon. Yeah, it's been it's been a year in the making, so I'm I'm very pleased to get this. Longer done. than that, people have been asking for two years. They've been asking, but I haven't actually done anything about it until <laughs> in in January of this year. That's when I yep. made the promise. I think it was in the first episode. I said I am going to figure out how to get you CPE this year. So I've delivered on that you promise. Delivered. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. So, so now, now you set a bar for for 2022, a whole new delivery. You'll have to meet up too. So let's. I, th- I think what you do is like enough time about you and your app. <laughs> Let's jump into the listener. We have four letters, right? Or four. We promised, right? To address these we four did. letters. We okay. did. Here's one about CPA exam stats. This is from Thad. Thad said, Hi, Blake. Just listening to your recent episode on the Cloud Accounting Podcast on the topic of NASBA saying they will not release exam pass failed data and the like. I think one big reason could be that it will take them a while to get the new exam dialed in to the correct difficulty. I know I considered those numbers carefully in planning which sections to take when. At the time, BEC had a much higher pass rate than the other three sections, indicating that it was generally easier. I used that info to plan BEC into a tougher spot in my schedule, so I would not have as much pressure from that section. As NASPA makes changes to the exam, that data might become too exploitable for them to want to publish it. Thanks for the great work you and David do to bring us the podcast week in and week out. I listen to every episode. It was also really helpful for me in launching my own practice in 2019 because it helped me to think about firm level issues like technology, staffing, trends in the profession, rather than the nuts and bolts of accounting work that I dealt with as a staff accountant at a CPA firm. Thank you, Thad. So so is his premise on this or the theory that if people find out one or two sections isn't really tough yet because they just haven't dialed it in fully, more people accelerate their planning to take the CPA exam and they'll try to take it earlier while it's still a little easy? Yeah, or they'll they'll pick the ses- sections that are known to be easy, which already happens. 
currently. Everyone knows that BEC is generally the easiest section. So people will either take that first or take it last, depending on their preference. We all know that I think audit is the hardest for most people. So a lot of people will just load that up first. You know, there's there's something about this that's funny to me, which is, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but the CPA exam is not curved. We don't know exactly how it's graded, but NASBA says it's not curved. At least that's what I've read in the past. And I always wondered why. Like, if if the point of the exam is to produce a 50% pass rate, which is generally around what it is, then why not just curve the exam every year and produce the number of CPAs that you need to produce? Like, philosophically, I understand why you, some people don't like the idea of curving, but if the if really the objective is to just limit the number of new CPAs we get, I would just say, like, set a target and then curve the exam so that you hit that number of CPAs. Because we all know that it's not really, the CPA exam doesn't really judge that you have the knowledge to be a CPA. That's why we have an education requirement. Yeah, I would just say, like, curve the exam. Who cares, right? It would make things easier for NASBA if they did that. I don't know what other people think about that, but. So, so like, taxi medallions. Like, there's just so many every year and that's it. Yeah, and then what you could do is if there aren't, aren't enough CPAs, you could just say, we're going to, you just set the target of the number you want, and then you curve the exam to get that target, right? That's one way to do it. So anyway, thank you, Thad, for that note and your thoughts on that. I, I agree. That's probably why. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Factor AE. Factor AE was built specifically for architecture and engineering firms looking for a platform that fulfills their functionality needs without being overly complex. This includes the Factor AE integration to QuickBooks Online. Factor AE lets QuickBooks be good at the stuff it does well, accounts payable, accounts receivable, and financial statements. While Factor AE focuses on the advanced project management functionality that your architecture and engineering clients need, Factor AE includes resource scheduling, budgeting, and revenue forecasting, flexible billing invoicing options based on phases, and reporting that includes industry-specific KPIs developed by architecture and engineering industry experts. Factor AE offers dedicated support via phone, email, or chat, and has a process where they'll do the upfront setup for your clients, getting them up and running in as little as 10 business days. To learn more about using Factor AE with your architecture and engineering clients, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Factor AE. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash F-A-C-T-O-R-A-E. All right, moving on. Here's a note about the 150 hours requirement. This is fascinating. And this listener requested that we not disclose their name for confidentiality reasons. Hi, Blake. I wanted to give you an interesting update on my story. I passed my fourth and final part of the CPA exam in early November, but as mentioned before, I still need to get my 150 hours, which should be done by January 15th. The partners of my firm wanted to admit me as a partner as a non-CPA owner, as they figured it was only a matter of time before my license comes through, but you'll never believe what is preventing it from happening the 150 hours. Maybe you knew this, but non-CPA owners are still required to have 150 credit hours per the AICPA. I'm not that bitter, to be honest, because I feel it's just a matter of time, but I thought you would find it interesting since your podcast talks about the 150-hour rule every once in a while. This listener included a link to 
the vote when this happened. It was years ago now. I had no idea. So, I had so no did idea. Did I hear this correctly? Just to make sure I'm paying attention and our listeners who are paying attention in case this is a question on the, the earmark pod, uh, uh, quiz. If you and I start an accounting firm, you're a CPA, you obviously are getting your CPA, you still have to do 150 credit hours, but me as a part owner, I have to go get 150 as well? Did I, yeah. did I, did I understand that correctly? Yeah. It makes no sense. Why make the non-CPA owners in a CPA firm get 150 hours? Like, is it just to put them on par with the education requirement for CPAs so that... But there's no control over this. Like, again, I'm doing basket weaving. I can do any 150 I want. Right. Yeah, you just have to have 150 hours of education, five years of college, basically. Here's my what I suspect. The reason they did this is because they don't want people deciding not to get the CPA because of the 150-hour requirement and just become a non-CPA partner in the firm. So it's to force people to get the CPA, even though there's this onerous requirement. So so basically, the, the, the bet is, okay, you've twisted my arm. I've, I've done the education requirement. I might as well just go do the CPA too. Or it's, you know, somebody who doesn't want to go do the 150 hours could say, well, I'll just be a partner but not be a CPA. And they're okay. discouraging that by making you go get the 150 hours anyway. At that point, you might as well take the exam. So I, th- I think it's just a way to prevent people from, or to try and stop people from doing that. So, so you could be Bill Gates, but in finished college, and you could be a business mogul, and you want to go into business with a CPA, and maybe you have all the business chops, and the CPA is really good at audit and tax, and together you could build a great business, but in theory, you're not allowed to, to join that CPA unless you could get those 150 credit hours. Yeah. That doesn't help anybody. <laughs> All right, moving on. Here is a letter in response to that episode, the 4,000-year-old case of tax avoidance. In that episode, we talked about why people aren't switching from QuickBooks Desktop to QuickBooks Online. And you, David, made that argument that it's, what did you say about it? It holds back the whole industry, right? Everybody gets distracted about it. Your firm has to support it. Third-party apps have to support it. There's just a lot to do to support QuickBooks Desktop, including Intuit, right? Intuit's, the mm-hmm. more they support QuickBooks Desktop, the less work they're doing on QuickBooks Online. So here's our listeners' thoughts. This is from Lauren. Love your podcast. Started listening in 2020. I come from within the traditional CPA firm background, so I was excited to make a jump to start my own CPA firm with more open-mindedness for cloud accounting, which, as you know, most traditional CPA firms shy away from. The Cloud Accounting Podcast gave me an arsenal of information and tools to get started. In regards to QuickBooks Desktop and QBO, the reason why accountants are so reluctant to make that switch is the limited functions and capabilities of QBO. I have switched clients from desktop to QBO and have found myself in a bind where, one, I can't create gap financial statements. Desktop version at least has statement writer. Two, there's a limitation on classes slash properties slash location reporting whereas desktop would be more flexible. Three, for year-end analysis, we need a working trial balance report to show unadjusted balances, adjustments, and adjusted balances. Desktop has this, QBO does not. This forces me to find workarounds or purchase additional software, so it increases time and cost when desktop does it all. And if you need these functions today, can you really wait for Intuit to create and develop it in the near future? It takes them a long time, and we, as users, won't even know if this will be something their developers have in the pipeline. 
in the near future, maybe never. I've seen lots of community posts where issues still remain as issues. Maybe I'm missing a step. Are most cloud accounting firms also supplementing their implementation of Xero and QBO with another cloud trial balance software, financial statement software? There's always something to keep in mind when using any software. Finding out the limitations, pros and cons, as I'm experimenting with other applications as well. I'm finding it to be costly and not as efficient as marketed, but perhaps I'm trying to tinker with it to make it work since it seems a lot of other accountants are successful. Any suggestions as I put together my tech stack for this new firm of mine? Anyway, keep up with the great work. Sincerely, Lauren. So David, I'm curious to know if you have any recommendations for Lauren based on those limitations that she's experienced. I think that Working Trial Balance, coincidentally, a new sponsor that just started today, Tally4, that's basically what they do. They pull the trial balance from QBO or Zero. I guess you can listen to the commercial, but essentially they take it, they move it into their app. And then you do your uh, tax trial balance and then it shoves it over to CCH, et cetera. Kind of thinking about this question, like we don't even know if Intuit's working on this or what have you, but this is what's good about Intuit being in the bookkeeping business and then TurboTax live business. Because now Intuit has the exact same problem and which means they'll probably have to solve it. That's interesting. So we generally have seen Intuit competing with us in QuickBooks Live and TurboTax Live as a bad thing, but you're saying that now that they're in the business of full-service tax prep in the business of bookkeeping, they'll build the tools to solve our problems in addition to their own. Because they're eating the dog food, right? It's not just mm-hmm. getting feedback like, oh, when do we get our working trial balance? It, 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 it's not going to a bucket of a bunch of accounts just asking for a feature. It's now like it's a real problem they're going to have as well. Yeah, that's a good point. And on top of that, it would make, I believe as a competitive advantage. If you own the bookkeeping, QuickBooks, and you own the tax, like why wouldn't you make this like some beautiful perfect workflow as a competitive advantage. Because then either side is used as an accounting firm, you're going to choose both products if they work perfectly together. You'd be willing to change off of a different tax software because it works perfectly with QuickBooks Online. Or if you have this perfect tax software that worked with Xero, you'd be willing to use Xero instead, right? Uh, Lauren also asked if people are using or supplementing Xero and QBO with financial statement software. I think a lot are. I recently was working at a company where we did that at Giraffe, J-I-R-A-V. No longer there, I still recommend it as an option for creating financial reporting and doing forecasting and budgeting that QBO and Zero can't do. There's also Reach Reporting, and I think they've been a, a sponsor, right? Yeah, Reach um, Reporting sponsor. You have Spotlight, you have Fathom. There's been mm-hmm. a lot of third-party... Uh, QVinci is one. There's a lot of third-party reporting tools that do add-on. And, and if you use those properly, it's it's a big investment. But in the end, the result you get is actually better than desktop because those apps do a lot more than what you can get from Statement Writer in desktop. For instance, in the case of Giraffe, it's being able to create a financial forecast in addition to all your historical reports. Or in the case of Reach, you can do these beautiful dashboards and Spotlight too, right? And and you just can't do that in the desktop. And that's always been my point of view as well. Like you have QuickBooks Desktop Contractors Edition. And it was good, don't get me wrong. But QuickBooks Online plus Noify or QuickBooks Online plus Builder Trend, depending on your client, how big they are from construction, that's actually, those are better solutions than just standalone QuickBooks Desktop. Yes, you're going to have to buy more apps. There's probably no way around that. The, the number two limitation with classes, properties, locations, I think that is annoyingly less flexible, at least in QBO, because I think you're, well, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, David, but 
you're kind of locked into how those work. You can't rename them. In Zero, you can rename your tracking categories, which is nice. And you can use them for whatever you want. But that is less useful. Yeah. And that's where tags, it's like, and, and QuickBooks has built really the solution for this. But until they let third-party developers access tags, it's kind of mm. makes it not very well adopted yet. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for that insight. Uh, those are challenges. I think they can be overcome. And I'd be really interested to hear from our listeners who have solved these problems. What are you using? Send me an email, blake at blakeoliver.com. And if you are brave and you want to share your voice on the podcast, send me a voice memo. Just go ahead and open up your phone, open up the voice memo app, record yourself answering this question, send it to me, and we will listen and likely play it on the air. And I thought some of this working trial balance stuff, and these are features they've started to build out or they plan on some of the roadmaps for QuickBooks Online Accountant Edition, right? I think so. But again, there's no timeline specifically as to when this is going to happen. Yeah, it just shows and up at a presentation at QuickBooks Connect. As a promise. Who knows when it'll be here. And who knows when it'll happen, yeah. Well, you promised CP credit for, for a podcast and it happens. You never know. <laughs> it took me a year though. One more listener email. This is from Greg. Greg says, hi, Blake. I am hoping you and David can do a future podcast discussing relationships with your clients, boundaries with clients, and responding to clients. Do you respond right away? Do you respond to every client's email? This is super hard for me. I have a great reputation with my clients because I have always responded to everyone almost immediately, but it has created a problem because everyone expects a response right away, and if you don't, they wonder what is going on. We ended up keeping the business. We emailed a letter yesterday to all 1,800 clients announcing that we are now 100% remote and that we are raising our prices by 80%. We included a link to the fee schedule and a link to our website in the letter. We are hoping that half of the clients will drop because we can't do them all. Now a lot of clients are asking about the new fees. We don't have time to respond to each and every client to tell them how much their new fee is going to be. And we don't have time to respond to tell them again what the letter said to click on the link to see the estimate of your total fees. Would it be unprofessional to not respond or do we need to respond to all these inquiries about the fee increases? Just wondering your thoughts and opinions. My wife says, let them figure it out. They are adults and they can go on the website to calculate their fees. I have a hard time not responding. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, and congrats on being a full-time podcaster. I suffer from the exact same dilemma. You know, I think for me historically, one of the things, it's like a double-edged sword. One of the things that may be successful is I was always accessible. But then it crosses the point where too many people have your contact information. I literally got a text last night. Some small business in Iowa texted me. They watched some YouTube video about Melio. I, I, this was 1030 Arizona time. So this would be 11 o'clock at night, 1130 at night in the Midwest on the Tuesday night before on holiday week. I got a text <laughs> asking if Melio would be the right fit for their business. How did you get a text That's message? That's this double-edged sword, right? You're, you're, you're too accessible. Did, did you give out your phone number at some point? Yes. <laughs> at least they didn't call because I always say like, don't call because I'm doing a webinar, but this is my phone number. But in theory, my stuff's really out there for accountants and bookkeepers. This is not even right. an accountant. It's just a small business owner. But, oh, man. but, but, but it's just like my LinkedIn messages and just, it can be overwhelming. So I understand where he's coming because you, you have an emotional need to respond, right? And yeah, support yeah, yeah. people. And it's, it's, I, I don't have it nailed down and it's a huge struggle of my own personally. And I do think that it is important to respond. Now, when you have 1,800 clients and you are the main point of contact, I can see how that would be 
impossible. Your inbox fills up after you send out a blast and you've got maybe hundreds of people asking, what is my fee going to be? Especially when you've raised prices 80%, which is great. I mean, that's what we've been telling people to do. We know that most tax folks are underpricing their services, sometimes by half. So like Greg's doing the right thing, but the question is, how does he deal with this onslaught? This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by OnPay. If you're wondering why OnPay is great, it's because it was built by payroll experts with over 30 years of payroll experience. They handle all the complicated stuff that other payroll providers don't, like agricultural payrolls, including Form 943, multi-state payrolls, and employees with H-2A visas. Even while handling all the complicated stuff, OnPay remains an easy-to-use, full-service payroll and HR app that is the right fit for all of your clients, whether they have just one or 500 employees, to help them stay organized, save time, and get compliant. OnPay has flexible and customizable integrations with QuickBooks and Xero. OnPay's partner program offers free payroll for your firm, discounts, and special bonuses for moving clients to OnPay for 2022. The program also offers a dedicated support team to offer white glove service to both you and your clients. To learn more about offering your clients the award-winning OnPay payroll and HR, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash OnPay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash O-N-P-A-Y. OnPay. Nobody takes better care of your clients. I do have an idea about how I would handle it. So one one idea is get a virtual assistant. Get one that you trust enough to give them access to your inbox. And if necessary, you could set up a separate reply inbox for these sort of things. So when you send out an email blast to people, the reply to is different. Maybe the reply to is like a support email address for your firm. So support at myfirm.com or info at myfirm.com. And that is a shared inbox with your virtual assistant. And then that person's job is simply to respond to these emails and flag the ones that they can't respond to. This is very affordable now with the rise of remote work and Upwork sites like that. You can find a really good virtual assistant who, say, in the Philippines has great English, written English, and can do this kind of thing for you. But even if you hire somebody and you're paying them 25 bucks an hour, like it's, I'm finding it totally worth the money. Oh, yeah. That was, that's the lesson I learned like this summer. Like Having that intern around for the summer was amazing. But what I didn't do is I didn't have a good plan of when they go away. This fall has just been a nightmare. I, I've fallen behind in everything. Um, but now I have the two new interns starting and you know I'll, I'll turn this corner. But yeah, having somebody help you is huge. Even and, and that's what I do. Sometimes I just have them go to my LinkedIn inbox and just reply if I have to. And then and then or just figure out like, oh, here's the actual six real messages that aren't spammers that you have to reply to. Give them some email templates. Give them some like stock responses, like or or send them examples of replies that you've sent to folks, and then say like draft emails similar to this, and teach them how to go calculate the fee for the client. So that would be an immediate triage method. If you don't want to hire somebody, there's an app that I use called Text Expander, which allows you to create snippets of text. So you you take something you've written to a client, you copy it into Text Expander, and then you type a little code on your keyboard. And then it just expands into that snippet. So it's a way of saving email templates very easily without having to install special software for managing email. That's another way to do it. Chris Farman, he's in the brewery niche. Mm-hmm. And he has uh, his firm's small batch, small batch standard. And they basically do counting bookkeeping services only for breweries. And he has different plans. And one of his plans, you get to basically meet with him once a quarter. There's other plans. If you pay more, like you're paying for access to him. 
And so he has plans where you get to meet with him every week, but those plans are crazy expensive. And that's a way to control access to you. Now you can meet, have meetings with his team. It's building the, that structure around that, right? Yeah. But, but I get it. I almost thought like I could make a whole podcast of this journey of me trying to fix this. And that works really well when you have a team. The, the problem I think that I've learned that many firms have is it's just one partner. And that's Greg's in that situation. And he doesn't have help yeah. other than his wife. It's like two people and they've got this many clients. They want to shed half of them. But then like all this communication around that is tough this time of year, right? I, th I think probably the virtual assistants, the easy way to like, or the quickest way to solve this, maybe using the templates for next year, what I would consider is using something like practice ignition or a go proposal and sending out the, the proposal to every client way ahead of time. And then they have to accept it and pay, or at least put in their payment information so you can charge them when you deliver the return. Like do that in September, October, November, and then you won't have to be dealing with this in December, January. And this is the problem of the whole tax calendar. Like the ICPA should be lobbying to spread out tax dates somehow. So it's just smoother. So that way you're only dealing with so many clients per month instead of all your clients Q1 of the year. Why don't we have a system where your deadline is based on, like if you're an individual, your birthday or... For your business, it's like the the date you got your EIN or something, right? And then it would just be a rolling calendar. So the deadlines are just different depend for everybody. And you spread it out over 12 months. So it's not everybody in April. That would make a lot of sense, right? Why don't we have that? I guess the reason is because Congress likes to delay tax legislation until the last minute. Yeah, it would actually be probably really hard to manage. Like, well, he was in March of that year. And it's only, you know, there'd be a lot more math. But we allow extensions for six months anyway, so it's like, I don't know, maybe it would be harder, but it could be a way to spread out the work. That's the big problem in accounting, right? The the thing that, that ruins the accounting profession is the work compression during busy season. I think if it wasn't for that, a lot of people wouldn't be leaving the profession. Like, who wants to sign up for that these days when there's so many jobs now that offer easy work year-round if you have the right skills? And the best firms are figuring out how to deal with that, like uncompress tax season. And it's by taking on fewer tax returns and doing more client accounting services, advisory work year-round on monthly fees. And That's owning that bookkeeping and having that bookkeeping populate to a working trial balance all the time during the year. So the return's basically done by the time tax season rolls around because yeah. you've already got everything like mapped. But you can't do that if you don't control the bookkeeping. It goes back to what we talked about this last week, that whole yep. cast part of it, right? Yeah. And there are firms that do this. Like I know of them. They exist. So it's doable. I think making the transition is really tough though, because most firms are you know just a handful of people. So how do you, when you're busy all year round because of all the tax changes, how do you actually make time to make the change? That's the hard part. Could you just put a, an autoresponder email that says, hey, I'd love to discuss with you. Let's discuss this. And you give them a calendar link and it only has dates open in May. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Starting in January, right? Yeah. David, that's all the listener mail. We are all caught up. All right, David, can I talk about politics for a moment without alienating half our audience? I won't get alienated. Okay, good. So I'm going to talk about Donald Trump. Warning, trigger alert for those of you <laughs> who don't want to hear this. Skip ahead. I don't know if you all are aware, but Donald Trump has been in the Trump organization, have been under investigation, a fraud investigation by 
New York State Attorney General, Letitia James. And, and we got some details about this in a New York Times article. The headline, of course, if got we my attention. If we for a second, just to make sure I'm remembering correctly, maybe four months ago, five months ago, it could be even longer, maybe six months ago, somebody who was a longtime accountant or bookkeeper for him, for Trump, was keeping had really good records. He just, uh, every time he, he's like, I flew on the, the Trump jet this time, or I got these basketball tickets, like this under the table kind of pay. Like he kept track of meticulous records about this. Am I remember something like that? Yeah, yeah. It was, um, I think they're CFO, the Trump organization CFO. And we predicted this could be the downfall of the Trump organization because of these super aggressive tax deductions. And so is this tying to where we are now? So this article is actually on a separate issue. The headline is Trump Fraud Inquiries Focus. Did he mislead his own accountants? That obviously got my attention. According to this leak, what the investigation is looking into is these statements of financial condition that Trump's accountants prepared for various banks, and Deutsche Bank in particular. Annual statements of financial condition is what they're called. I guess the question at the heart of this investigation is, did Trump and the Trump organization commit fraud by inflating the value of assets in order to defraud lenders? And I read this article. I think there's zero chance, basically, that he gets hit with fraud for this. Because as most of us tend to do, when we're preparing these kind of statements for our clients, we put disclaimers all over the place, right? The accountants, the Mazars USA, did a pretty good job, it sounds like, of putting disclaimers all over these financial statements. So basically what happened is the Trump organization sent over these valuation amounts of different properties, right? This is to get loans from banks. The accountants just took those spreadsheets and put them into financial statements and then said, we didn't audit this. We didn't examine it. It could be completely wrong. Not audited or reviewed. We do not express an opinion or provide any insurance assurance about it. They even said that in compiling the information for Mr. Trump, they had, quote, become aware of departures from accounting principles generally accepted in the United States of America, unquote. With those disclaimers... I mean, I think they're protected. This is the same thing that I used to do in my firm, which is I, I didn't produce financial statements for my clients. I produced you know, management reports. And we had big disclaimers on the bottom that said, this report was produced using information from our client and you know, we make no assurance to it and it's not for outside use. You shouldn't. Anyway, I think there's zero chance that like this actually goes anywhere. That's all. That's my thought on it. Which keeps happening, right? Yeah. It's, the, it, the chase it, continues. It feels like this is a political investigation, at least this part of it. It's funny too, because the bank, Deutsche actually made money. So it's hard to even say there was a victim. <laughs> you know what this reminds me of? It's sort of like when a client asks for you or a mortgage lender asks you to provide as an accountant to provide, what do they call it? It's like a letter for your client, right? It's a, validating some sort of income or whatever. But like everybody knows that those letters don't mean anything, but they keep asking for them. All right, that's it. You can turn your volume back up. We're done with the politics. It wasn't too political. I don't think it was too political. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Tally4. Tally4 is the tax flow tool empowering CPA firms to automate the tax trial balance, allowing them to save hours on each return by flowing the data from the books to the trial balance to the tax forms in three easy steps. Import, adjust, and file. Import. Tally4 can connect to Xero, both QuickBooks Online and Desktop, Sage Intact, or Excel to pull the trial balance automatically. Adjust. 
Your accounting and tax teams can collaborate to make all the necessary tax-based adjustments to the trial balance. You can even distribute and assign the work accordingly. File. Once the tax trial balance is completed and approved, Tally4 can automatically send the trial balance data to any of the leading tax software apps that you may be using, including UltraTax, LACERT, Drake, CCH Access, Engagement, and ProSystem FX. Tally4's import, adjust, and file process will help you reduce the time it takes to create a tax return from multiple hours to just minutes. To learn more about using Tally4 in your CPA firm, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Tally4. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash T-A-L-L-Y-F-O-R. So we can continue down criminal and fraud type stories. So the Secret Service put out a press release. I don't know if it's a press release, a statement talking about how $100 billion in COVID relief funds have been stolen and how they're working on like 900 cases and they're, they're working with Green Dot and PayPal. They've recovered money, right? So this was uh, specifically unemployment insurance and loan fraud. And, and the One- PPP as well. They're basically combining all the numbers together and coming up with this $100 billion. I'm trying to understand like why, because to some extent these are known numbers. Like, why is the Secret Service out there doing this? Other than, is it for budget? Hey, look at us. Like, we're getting this money back. Give us more budget for these criminal investigations. But then you kind of think, is it more effective for us to fund, as this is what went through my head, for us to fund the the Secret Service and chase down this $100 billion in fraud? Or is it better to invest in the IRS and have Elon Musk pay $11 billion? Like, where should we be putting our resources as politicians in a government have the budget? Well, depending on who you believe, the tax gap is either non-existent or close to a trillion dollars a year. The tax gap is way bigger than the fraud from the pandemic relief funds. Even if that is $100 billion, I believe we have a much bigger tax gap. So we should be funding the IRS over Secret Service when it comes to these types of cases. Absolutely. Uh, if you believe that you know funding the IRS will result in more compliance. But again, it's like there's all this dispute about what is the actual amount of the tax gap and will investing in the IRS actually deliver the 10x results that the administration is promising? I think everybody agrees that giving money to the IRS has a positive ROI. The question is just how much. The last thing that uh, accountants want, and this is what the Republicans have been saying, the last thing that accountants and small business owners want is more audits. But maybe more audits is what we need to get the worst bad actors to comply. And the question is just who's going to get audited, right? Is it going to be the actual bad actors or is this just going to create a hassle for everybody else? It just It just kind of depends on what they are uses the money for. And will they use the money to improve service levels, which is what everyone really, really wants, right? Everybody agrees service levels are terrible, but can't improve service levels without giving them the money to do it. Yeah. But you know, what's interesting here is, is the percentage number. This was in the CFO article, so I'm not sure if this is correct. Given that they got the billion and million mixed well, up. Well, I, I, I know where but, they got the 100 million before you go into this. So, this article at the very bottom talks about 100 million in fraudulent funds have passed through investment accounts since Congress passed the CARES Act last March. So, they've cracked down, right? It's harder, right? A lot of the PPE loan companies aren't working with the instant banks. They're not working with Chime. They're not working with some of these banks now. You can't get a cash, a cash app bank account and go get a PPP loan and have it deposited in there. So they've, they've started to lock that stuff down. But even since March, there's been $100 million. That's where they probably get the $100 million mark. Got it. These numbers are really big. So it's hard to make sense of them. A percentage kind of can help. So 
CFO says that the amount of stolen funds across all these programs, the Paycheck Protection Program, the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, and the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program, the amount of stolen funds across all those programs represents approximately 3% of the $3.4 trillion dispersed. That's how much fraud we've had. 3% of the total has gone out the door to fraud. Do you think that's a good amount like or a bad amount? I feel like anything more than 1% is material. It's too much. I think under 1% would be good. When you think about it in the big scheme of things, to lose 3% to fraud for what it's achieved, assuming that it doesn't achieve Going massive back to that theory inflation. Keeping the economy from collapsing. Right. If, it, if, if that's what it in fact did, which is keep the economy from collapsing, then it was worth it. What, what if the economy collapsed and we had a whole different kind of criminal activity arise? Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to know what would have happened otherwise. Yeah. But on the whole, I feel like it was good. It worked. And it sucks to have that fraud. But as everybody knows who deals with retail, you're always going to have a certain amount of product walking out the door. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. You could try and stop it, but it's not worth it. I guess that's the takeaway. What is the appropriate amount of shrinkage in a pandemic relief program. I wonder what the number is for retail. I'm sure we have listeners that specialize in retail and they can give us a voicemail and tell us what's acceptable amount of shrinkage at a company. And I think that's it for non-app news for me. Oh, I have a stat I just looked up. National Retail Federation says that theft, fraud, and losses from other retail shrink, which is basically shoplifting and employee theft, totaled 61 Point seven billion in 2019. That represents 1.62% of sales. It's about twice as bad, let's just say, the fraud from pandemic programs as the typical retail. But I imagine they're getting the, it back. Like they're, they're, reco- they're starting to recover a billions. They, they should this, be able so. to, right? They should be able to recover a lot of it because they can trace it back to people. Ultimately, it's just a matter of like, how long will that take? And yeah. a lot of retail frauds, like nickel and dimed. Right? You're it's never hard. getting that back. It's a lot of $50, $60, $70 shirts <laughs> or $70 sweatpants, as I quickly discovered recently. Well, hey, since we're talking about the recovery of the PPP funds, just another interesting stat here. Cryptocurrency is used a lot for crime. That's one of the number one uses for Bitcoin and, and whatnot. The IRS has seized $3.5 billion in cryptocurrency in the past year. That makes up 93% of its overall seizures from October 1st, 2020 to September 30th, 2021. So 93% of IRS seizures are cryptocurrency. That just tells you how much cryptocurrency is used in financial crime these days. Especially something that that, the reason people are choosing to use that for financial crimes is in theory, it's not not supposed to be traceable. Nobody can get it. Nobody can grab it. But obviously, that's that's a funny thing. Yeah, the blockchain is an immutable record. So if you have the time and the resources, you can trace it eventually and and get it, which is funny. So I don't know, maybe as the IRS gets smarter with this and the Secret Service and all these FBI, all these agencies get better at cracking down on it, maybe it will not be as favored anymore. Or maybe. Remember remember we talked about how they, they brought down all those criminals because they basically the FBI just created like cell phones that were quote unquote non-trackable. <laughs> And all these criminals were just using them and selling them to each other. And they really just, all the cell phones were made by the FBI. Like maybe, maybe this whole cryptocurrency thing 
it's all being ran by the government. So they're watching it all anyways. <laughs> it's not, you know, under the covers. It's really just the government. What they should do is set up, yeah, honeypot like servers for criminals to hack into and ransomware and then pay the ransomware and then track the money back to them. That would be a great service. They're probably doing that already, I bet, or they're going to do it soon. Want to jump into app news? Let's do it. So Sage made another acquisition. They are on a tear. They acquired a company called Bright Pearl for 225 million pounds. Apparently, they already owned some portion of it. They owned 17% of it before, and now they uh, finished the acquisition completely. The, uh, Bright Pearl is basically uh, cloud-native, multi-channel retail for retailers and wholesalers. It's getting you into that, you know, the everything businesses game, right? Inventory management, order management, shipping and fulfillment, warehouse management, purchasing CRM. and supplier management, POS, everything. And so this is where they're really trying to get this into the Sage Intact stack because it's really for mid-sized businesses. It's going to enable real-time insights and automate workflows, the same time and money. And really, I think the key here is the ultimate goal for the combined companies is to offer a suite of tools encompassing financial management, inventory planning, sales, supplier relations, CRM, fulfillment, warehousing, and logistics in one place. That could be a sentence about Intuit's current moves. That could be a sentence about some of the Zero's moves. This same sentence is applicable to many people's press releases lately. Bright Pearl integrates with Zero, QuickBooks Online, and QuickBooks Desktop. So I'm curious what's going to happen to those integrations now that Sage has bought 100% of it. I think KKHR still integrates with both those. They bought KKHR. They bought Auto Entry. It still integrates with QuickBooks and Zero. Let's hope. Then that was the talk we got, right? When we talked to um, Aaron Harris from Sage Intact, right? And he said they plan on like, keeping open platform with all their apps and their partners. But we'll see. We'll see. We will see. Sometimes that, that always looks good on paper and then push comes to shove one day and people turn products off. Speaking of acquisitions, Zero has acquired Canadian tax software provider Tax Cycle. One word, Tax Cycle. Based in Calgary, Alberta, Tax Cycle was founded in 2010 by Canadian tech industry veteran Cameron Peters. Cameron created some of the first tax software for electronic filing in the mid-90s and has been continually innovating in the space since then. Tax Cycle software provides a full Canadian income tax suite with almost 4,000 tax firms and over 16,000 individual accountants, bookkeepers, and tax preparers using its solution. That's according to the Zero blog. What are your thoughts on this, David? I think TaxCycle had like a retail product, but it sounds like based on these numbers, they also have a professional product as well, considering that tax firms are using it. So this goes back to rewinding to our listener email from Lauren. And we talked about that end to end. You have bookkeeping and you have tax and getting them all connected together. Zero could essentially do this in Canada. And, and they already have this pretty well locked down in Australia, right? Yeah, this, this is their end. main value prop in New Zealand, Australia is it's a end-to-end solution. Everything in one place. Work papers, tax, accounting, and all the data flows. And we just and don't have, have that in the US. do this in Canada. Yeah, they could do this in Canada and own it. They could own the Canadian market with this, at least among accounting firms for sure. I'm jealous. Like, when are we going to get this in the US? I think the problem is our tax code is just too complicated. And all the tax software providers are too big to acquire. It's not like Xero is going to go out and buy CCH or Thomson Reuters or you know whatever else. They can afford H&R Block. Somebody could buy H&R Block. 
But you said four, it was $4 billion market cap last week. So I think so, yeah. Maybe they could. But we don't want Zero also competing with accountants and bookkeepers in providing services. Like that to me is the difference now between Zero and, and Intuit. It's not that the software is that much different, right? It's Pepsi Coke when it comes to the software. But the difference is that Intuit is directly competing with accountants and bookkeepers for bookkeeping and tax work, whereas Zero has stayed out of that game. Now you think, David, that they'll get into it someday, but yeah, I think and if they eventually want to, the street's going to force them. Um, they're kind I of disagree. Doing it, I disagree. I think they're doing it a little under the radar, a little bit by like you know the way they're partnering with HR Block. They're kind of they're letting other people kind of do it. I, I don't know. We'll we'll see where it gets to. I just think it'll never happen because globally, Zero is so aligned with accounting firms that they would never compete with them. I guess never say never. I think it's a good move. I mean, ultimately, it's very clear, like you said from our email, this is what accountants want. They want that end-to-end. They don't have to get third-party middleman apps to move mm-hmm. data around. They want this full connection. Here's a tax change that's coming that's going to affect payment apps. David, I'm curious to know if you've encountered this with Melio. Did you know that payment app providers are going to have to start reporting to the IRS a user's business transactions if, in aggregate, they total 600 or more for the year? A business transaction is defined as a payment for a good or service. Now, prior to this change, app providers, payment providers, only had to send the IRS a Form 1099-K if an individual account had at least 200 business transactions in a year, and if those transactions combined resulted in gross payments of at least $20,000. So most people who used apps like PayPal and Melio and Venmo didn't get 1099-Ks. But now a lot more are going to get that. So that's something that accountants and bookkeepers need to be aware of. And I would, if I were you, send out a note to your clients, letting them know to expect this form coming their way and to hand it along to you. Yeah. Cause I think this was like, it started out as like very, the political drum was banging on this a couple months back. The informational yeah. reporting, you know, yes. yeah. the, the requirements and the $600 thing. But I, th- but I think what it is, and I wouldn't be surprised if you know, the Venmos and the PayPals. And because a lot of people are using these apps, the personal apps for business to avoid paying fees, right? And yeah. I, I think this is going to help those apps push people towards their business product. I think it's going to surface those up. And then who knows where it goes from there? Maybe. PayPal recently put out a Q&A for users of PayPal and Venmo saying, quote, in the coming months, we may ask you to provide tax information like your employer identification number, individual tax ID number, or social security number if you haven't provided it to us already, because they need those numbers to create these forms for you. So it's it's going to create a lot of like hassle for the users because they're going to get a pop-up saying like, if you want to keep using our app, you have to put this in because it's the only way the app's going to be able to send you the form. And I mean, all the apps that are truly designed for business like Melio, et cetera, like it's a requirement. Hard to get that. You got pro- yeah. to provide that information. It's know your customer type stuff. And, so, and that's where I think the crackdown is on this. It's about the money moving around for non-businesses or people that probably are a business, but they're not acting like a business other than the fact that you're getting money for goods and services. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to keep people that are not paying their share or reporting their share to report. Yep. I think it's a lot harder because in theory, you got to create a business to get your EIN, Right. You have to mm-hmm. be a business. And a lot of the apps that are truly for businesses are gathering that information. And I'm sure from the IRS's standpoint, it's probably being reported somewhere. But it's the people that aren't businesses that are, you know, they're, they're businesses. They're just not 
I was set up that way. Business. Set up that yeah. way. Yeah. That's where I probably drove a lot of this. Well, I think we're almost out of time. Anything else before we go, David? Ecos uh, software. So Ecos is a brewery software for craft brewers. They took a $21 million uh, Series B raise. How much? Uh, $21 million. Okay. Good chunk. So Ecos is growing pretty good. They serve 2,000 small businesses on six continents now. Um, it's a niche app. They only serve brewers and and distilleries. and But now they're going to use this, this money to kind of get in the whole end-to-end part of the craft supply chain, right? It used to be just software to like brew your beer. And now they're span, expanding out in the financial parts of this on both sides. And that sinks, you know, to QuickBooks and Zero, et cetera, like that. But it just shows, you know, there's a lot of... A lot of money in the niches as well. Riches in the niches. And that's it. David, if our listeners want to get in touch with you online, where should they go? They should just text me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm on all the socials, just at David Leary. And if you're on uh, LinkedIn, just say I'm not a bot. Helps me figure those out. I am at Blake T. Oliver on social media. Email me, Blake at BlakeOliver.com. Let me know your thoughts on any of the stories that we've discussed. And if you're feeling particularly adventurous, send me a voice memo. We'll play it on the air. And subscribe to Earmark CPE. Go to earmarkcpe.com, put in your email address to get on my newsletter, and you can download the app on the App Store. Just make sure that you search for Earmark, not Aramark. Yeah, and get your CPE credit for listening to this whole episode. You get specialized knowledge, CPE credit. Uh, If it's not on the app when you listen to this episode, it will be shortly. Amazing. And that's it. Have a Merry Christmas. And um, I guess we'll talk before the new year. So I won't wish you a happy new year yet. Not yet. All right. Bye, David. Bye. Time for the classifieds. Hey, podcast listeners. It's Blake. And I wanted to let you know about a new show I'm working on with CPA slash comedian Greg Kite and blogger slash former CPA Caleb Newquist. It's called Oh My Fraud, and it's a podcast all about financial crimes. That's right, a true crime podcast for accountants by accountants. Caleb and Greg are going to come together every couple weeks to unpack their favorite frauds and explore the circumstances, psychology, and interpersonal dynamics involved. They also fully indulge in victim-blaming the defrauded widows, orphans, infirm, and feeble-minded, because who can resist? If you fancy yourself a trusted advisor or prefer your true crime with spreadsheets instead of corpses, listen to this show to learn what to watch out for and to keep your clients, your firm, and even yourself safe. To subscribe, go to ohmyfraud.com or search Oh My Fraud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.